Forbes Books presents Unleashed with Rick Simmons, the podcast that connects you with leaders who embrace moments of volatility and disruption to harness the power of liminal space and to drive transformational change. I'm Joe Partavilla. Welcome back to our continuing conversation with Thomas Hopp, the president and founder of Sequoia Financial Group. We've been talking about the challenges Thomas faced while building an investment firm with just a handful of employees to scaling up to an organization with 168 team members. Rick, take it away. Let's talk about you a little bit here because at at Telos, we focus on the factors that contribute to personal and organizational success. How do you know when Tom is successful? Do you have your own KPIs or OKRs? So we manage the business over OKRs with OKRs. So we use that across the firm. So I have OKRs, which I would say they're firm-based, but they're also how I measure my success, right? So from a, you know, am I successful going to work each day? That's how I measure uh, my success is the OKRs the firm sets and whether we're able to achieve those. From a personal standpoint, um, I'm a big proponent of employee ownership. Uh, I don't think it needs to be 100% employee ownership. I just want to make sure that the employees have an opportunity to share in some of the success of the firm. So the employee ownership is kind of, we've called it icing on the cake as well. I mean, we, we have a, I personally have a goal to share in what we're building. So just from a personal standpoint, I want to share with the people who've been with me and have helped make all of this successful. Also from a competitive talent standpoint, I think sharing in the equity appreciation is something that the most motivated and engaged um, talent uh, advisors really want. And so that's something that that we've made a component of what we're doing. So for me, I, my personal kind of benchmark is, is how the rest of the team is doing. If the rest of the team is doing quite well, then I'm sure I'll be doing quite well. Hmm. Um, and that's really more of my personal KPI. Huh. And do you ever judge your leadership skills? Or do you, uh, are, are there days where you're like, man, today I just did, I, I did not bring it today in terms of being a leader? Uh, uh, yes, there are definitely days like that. I try not to measure it uh, too much day by day. Yeah. I, I do think a lot about my, you know, what got us the first 30 years won't get us the next 30 years. And I do want to make sure that I am thinking thoughtfully and intentionally about durability. I won't say succession because, you know, I'm not looking to necessarily find someone to take over and me step out. I am looking about making the business durable and making sure that the 168 people we have now, that, that, that they're not, there's no way that one person can harm them, right? Or can, you know, hold them back, right? So the more durability we have in all positions, including mine, the the, be- the, the, the better, the more depth we have there, the more durable we can become. Hmm. Certainly, there will come a time when I'm no longer running the business. So I need to make sure I have succession as well. But right now we're looking at agility and durability, agility to continue to handle the growth that we have, because we don't want to grow our teammates, grow our clients, uh, grow by acquiring other firms and not be able to deliver to them, right? So we can't take on new clients and essentially directly lie to them by not building the capacity to take care of them, right? So if we're going to want to grow organically and make investments along those lines, we need to make investments in people and we need to make sure we have uh depth in all of these positions. So if something happens, we can we can have the next person up to be able to work as part of that engagement. Hmm. Um, so we know we're going to grow. We believe we're going to grow, I should say. 
And we want to be durable. And then ultimately, we'll also have to have succession plans for those of us who uh, get to the point that they want to pull back. Earlier, we mentioned that talent keeps you up at night. But I'm always curious for leaders like yourself who now have 168 hearts and minds that you basically are providing for on a daily basis. Does that, does that keep you up at night? When you saw the growth of your company, where you like said it was a small company yesterday and now we're growing rapidly and it's a much bigger company? Yes. Yeah. I mean, you, you feel personally responsible for them all and you, you, know, you realize they didn't ask you to be personally responsible for them. So you shouldn't feel that way, but you do. And you try you know, to you know, think about other subjects, but at times that can certainly keep you up at night and you want, it was easier in a way when you were small and you were only taking risks for yourself. Now you're taking risks for 168 people. So the quality of your decisions has to be better. Hmm. When when you saw that growth and you saw that you were, like you said, you're making decisions for a handful of people, then more, was that stressful to you when you started taking on more people? Because you obviously needed the more people to grow, but then that also meant that you were people putting more people, quote unquote, at risk because this is new, a new venture for them. Talk to me about your growth in that time period. So I think I look forward much better than I look back and I look forward much more often than I look back. So most of what I'm thinking about as far as the people is, we, I can see the opportunities we have. And so we have to get more people to be able to service the opportunities and to be able to effectively compete um, in matters of technology and asset management and planning. So I usually am looking at people in a very exciting way because I'm getting something else. I'm getting another talent that we can use, something else, another kind of tool in the tool chest that allows us to optimize the client experience to aid uh, you know, our team. You know, if it's... If it's uh, if it's another asset management person or a state planning person who's going to a trust person who's going to allow us to give something better to our clients, I get excited about that. If it's another technology person that's going to train our team to work more effectively, I get excited about that. So I spend 90 plus percent of my time looking forward and, and getting excited about that. But occasionally you can find yourself looking backwards and saying, gosh, I've now accumulated 168 people, you know, I, I can let that bother me um, as opposed to worrying about how I'm going to get the next 160 that we're going to need to to manage our growth and to keep the promises that we make to our clients and to our team um, about what we can do. Hmm, okay. And let's talk about that growth uh, without getting you in trouble with uh, lawyers and such. Uh, last November, Sequoia acquired NCA Financial Partners. What made NCA so appealing to you guys? First of all, they, they measure success by client success. So that, that was the culture was aligned. We try to, uh, you know, to find what that culture is. So measuring success by client success, working together as a team um, is critical. And coming from a comprehensive wealth management standpoint, meaning you're looking at the entire picture, not just one slice of a client's financial life. So those three boxes are very important. And we're looking for those initially um, in all of our conversations. So I've known the principal at uh, Kevin Myroff at NCA for 20 plus years. And so I knew a lot about his culture. I didn't know as much about the rest of his team, but I knew his quality, his integrity, his desire to build a durable team. Um, and over the years, we've shared best practices and I've suggested that if there comes a time that he's ready to think about partnering up, we'd love to be considered. Um, I'd say over the last five years, we've had a few more serious conversations about that. And over the last year, he said, I'm now ready and uh, I want to kind of consider my options. And we were fortunate enough to be asked to uh, participate and uh, 
that's how we got to the final closing at the end of the year. Really, his measure of success was was keeping his clients, continuing to deliver on this promise that he's made to his clients and a place where his employees would be excited to be, excited to be part of the team and have a, a long-term future. A lot of his team is you know younger than him and he wants them to have a multi-decade future and to be able to have career growth. And that's what was appealing to him about our story. Hmm. And well, the last time I was involved in acquisition, I was out of a job. So, and I'm sure not all acquisitions are created equal. How do you make it so seamless? Because I think you've been involved in a few of them now. How do you make it so seamless where the other team feels like it's a perfect fit for them? So we've done eight uh, transactions. So we have experience. So the, the best, the simple best answer is experience. We've made a lot of mistakes from <laughs> the beginning one to, to now. So we try not to make the same mistakes twice. In 2019, we invested in more of an integration strategy team. So we said, if we're going to do these, we can't just pull everybody off kind of line work and say, go work you know, in the evenings to work on integration. So we've started to build a team. It's led by our director of organizational development, Jennifer Koch, that actually has experience. She came to us from a bank who had done a number of mergers. So she had experience working on those. So she's built a process around that we follow. So with every acquisition that we do, when we're done with that process, we step back and kind of look at it and and do a, I guess I'll just call it a military style debrief. <laughs> what went right? What went wrong? What can we learn for the next one? What documentation? We get that feedback from our team and from the team that we acquired. And so that helps us get better in each one. Now, as we do bigger mergers and as we uh, find teams from different backgrounds, there's always something new that you learn with each one from that standpoint. So it really is, uh, you know, covering your bases as best you can for what you've learned already, and then being very transparent with what you're not sure about, right? So telling the team up front, these things we've done, these things we haven't. So these things we're going to have to work our way through together. And then I, I think the most important thing is for both sides to assume positive intent. If we want to work through this, we can. There will be many hiccups along the way. We're sure of that. And you could you could say some of those will be our fault. Some of those will be your fault. But if you assume that we both want this to work, we can work through it. Whatever is out there, we can work through if we're talking. But if, if you're thinking somehow we knew this was coming and we didn't share it with you or we're thinking you knew this was coming and you didn't share it with us, that's uh, that makes it toxic in some cases and very difficult. And I think to date, we've, we've had just really high quality people on both sides of, of all of our transactions. And we've all assumed positive intent and that's carried us through. Hmm. Well, you know, you mean business when you have an acquisition team on hand there, Tom. That's, uh, <laughs> I, I guess you guys aren't fooling around when it comes to acquisitions. Well, we, it, the acquisition team isn't fully sitting around and doing nothing. Otherwise, <laughs> they have other, other day jobs, but we leave Slack in their assignments and Slack in their responsibilities to know that they're going to have to spring into action. Um, all right. So incredible growth over this uh, 20 plus year time period, but there's some you know peaks and valleys along the way. So your company's been around for the 08 recession and then the pandemic. Looking back, I know you don't like to look back, but looking back at those two times, uh, what were similar in those sort of, sort of recessions that you learned that will probably help you going forward? So I was also around in the 2000, the 2002 oh, kind yeah. of market. Decline. The bubble. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that, the first one that we went through, we weren't that big. So there wasn't a whole lot. And it was actually good for us to gather assets and gather new clients because the disruption in the marketplace, you know, caused people to look. And as they looked, because we had very little to protect, 
we were able to acquire a, a decent amount of market share. So the first 2000, 2002 was a net positive. By 2008, we'd accumulated enough that we had something to protect. And that was the most difficult of the three time periods that we're talking about. That was somewhat extended. 2008, kind of the market started cracking in the beginning of the year, it got worse as the year got went on, got really bad in the fourth quarter of, of 2008 and first quarter of 2009. So it, it it was clear and it was consistent for nine month period of just daily drubbings, you might say. So it was consistent that um, you weren't sure when it was going to end. And there was a number of uh, very informed and intelligent people who would suggest it might not end, right? Mm. This might be the downfall of, uh, of the American economy. Wow. And there were some somewhat, um, I'll just say miraculous things that were done at the federal level that um, that probably saved us from an even worse uh, decline on an ongoing basis. So that was the, by far the most difficult. The good news, if you will, is that you got through that. And as you got through that, kind of we made our first acquisition in the summer of 2009, because when we got through those things, we started saying, if we can survive this, um, we need to, we can't stand still. We need to grow our way out of this. Um, and M&A was a, was a part of that. Uh, as well was uh, more investments in organic growth. Um, and so we, we almost felt like the, you know, you've made it through something that was really, really uh, difficult. That which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right. And uh, we came out with, with strong growth out of that. By the time uh, the COVID crisis in 2020 came along, it seemed really uh, challenging, certainly, especially in March of 2020, there were, the world was kind of shutting down. And, and it was scary because you weren't dealing with financial issues, you were dealing with health issues. And I know very little about those other than what you can read on the internet. Um, but it really, it, we kind of knew that as bad as the uh, 2008 crisis was, it was a finite period of time. It was a, you know, depending on how you measure it, a six to nine month period. And then things started moving forward. And also there, there was significant federal response that helped shorten that time period. So fairly early on to the COVID uh, challenges and in, in really the end of March of 2020, there, were, there was federal response. And as that federal response started coming in, it was reasonable to believe that you didn't know when it was going to stabilize, but you believed there would be stabilization based on history from that standpoint. So it was not as difficult as 2008. And having been through 2008, I think we were well prepared. Hmm. Isn't it funny, Tom, how we're it's we're so quick to criticize the federal government, but you just made two instances where if the government didn't step in, who knows? We could be in Mad Max Fury Road right now. Right. You're right. And and there is and and there's lots of room for criticism of the federal government. I I agree. But certainly in those circumstances, I think were things that needed to be done that they they did. My criticism with the federal government really isn't about those activities. It just I think sometimes they stay a little too long. <laughs> so I would have liked I would like to see them do things in the short term and then back away from them. But you know you can't have everything you want. Yeah, sometimes we all overstay our welcome, right, Tom? <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> <laughs> it happens. It's, you know, and speaking of the pandemic, you recorded a video message to your clients right in the middle of the COVID crisis where you talked about how you want to be motivated by gratitude. And you want your firm to be spurred to action by gratitude. When did you discover the importance of gratitude? I, I, I think it grows in importance, maybe as I age, but certainly I've always thought about uh, gratitude from the beginning. Um, we're just, you, you just, you can, you can start 
and go so far on how lucky we all are um, just to have been born in this country, you know, to start with that. So you can get very, um, very grateful very quickly, right? Um, when you think about the opportunities that have been presented to us, it's it's been a difficult and hard work to get to this point, but clearly we are very fortunate to have had the opportunities to participate in this industry. I was um, I, I was brought into this industry by a friend who really didn't explain it the way that I wanted to pursue it. Um, maybe even uh, said things about that told me it would be different than it actually turned out to be. But I got into it somewhat on uh, on accident, and it's been a wonderful industry for me to participate in. So I'm fortunate from that very level. I'm fortunate to be living in a country that allows for free enterprise and capitalism. Um, and I'm really fortunate to have uh, attracted the team that has helped us, uh, you know, excel uh, from that standpoint. If you start adding that up, they're just, I could go on, you know, the rest of the afternoon of things I have to be grateful for. And speaking of grateful and gratitude, you also give back. You're a board member of the Akron Canton Regional Food Bank. How did you get involved with them? What does that organization mean? So we started deciding, we started, used to send out holiday presents and, you know, as the firm grew, it was kind of like, we're not sure this makes a lot of sense to try to buy holiday presents for all these clients. So we kind of converted to a donation in the communities that we served. And we wanted a, a, something that was kind of universally appreciated in the communities we served and something that could we could go from one community to the next and kind of get a consistent uh, message, if you will. And so the food bank was appealing because it was, in, in, in our opinion, one of the most basic needs that people had. If they needed food, we wanted to be in a position where we could help them. And the food bank really uh, effectively helps the last mile organizations, the church pantries, deliver that food, right? So there's people who need food. They can't get to a centralized location to get food, but they can get to the corner church to get food. And the food bank helps aggregate the food that, you know, grocery stores and food companies have that is waste and bring it into a central site and then distribute it out. And our donations help them use uh, logistics to be able to gather up that food, but they also help them get donations, access government programs where they can buy more food um, and deliver that food out to what I'll call the last mile delivery uh, part of it. That was appealing to us across multiple communities. We made donations to the multiple communities we were working in as part of our holiday presence. You know, most importantly, the Akron Food Bank, after I did it a couple of years, they called and they said, I don't know who you are, but you keep sending us money. Can we come see you? <laughs> and I said, sure. And they did. And uh, Dan Flowers was and is the CEO of Akron Food Bank at the time. And we just struck up a great relationship. Um, he told me more about their mission and what they were doing. And, and we've been uh, big supporters ever since. And lastly, we talked about the impact you have on the lives of 168 people at Sequoia. There's also the lives of all the people whose money you manage. What does it mean to you that way, Tom? You're going to play a small part in people's happiness going forward to the end of their lives too, right? That's the most rewarding part of our industry and profession. You know, I, I do spend a lot of time, quote unquote, managing the business. So that means I have less time to spend with clients. But the most enjoyable thing I do is spending it with clients. And if I'm ever having a bad day, I go meet with uh, you know, essentially the very first client that our firm had uh, 30 plus years ago is still with us. And he's the most appreciative, most happy person I come across. He comes by that by nature. So he's a happy person to begin with. But our relationship over the last 30 years have helped him you know, manage through 
his family and 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 the you know, challenges he had for his family and the goals he had for his family and then has lost a spouse throughout this process and managing ongoing um, for children, grandchildren, and great grandchildren. And it's it's just a wonderfully rewarding time spent. He's so appreciative, more appreciative than I really deserve for sure. But uh, it makes you feel better uh, every time you have a meeting with him. They say time flies. Does uh, 31 years fly, Tom? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened. I, I, like I said, I don't look back all that often, but it's uh, it's surprising how fast it's gone. Hmm. Thanks, Tom. He is Thomas Haught, the president and founder of Sequoia Financial Group. Thanks so much, Tom. We're grateful for your time. Thank you, Rick. I really enjoyed my time together and appreciate you having me on. Rick, another great chat. But before we wrap things up, can you give us a quick rundown of Unleashed in Action? What are some of the actionable takeaways from our conversation with Tom? Joe, so many insights and takeaways here in our interview with Tom. The first one is really the awareness of the existence of the three primary time zones that Tom referenced. You know, this idea of the past or the good old days, the present, the here and now, and that third time zone being the future, you know, the best is yet to come. And the realization that we have, each of us, our own natural bias towards one of these time zones, and that the general population has a nearly equal distribution across this continuum. And therefore, by flexing only toward our own domain, our own bias time zone, we risk not communicating effectively with two-thirds of our audiences or constituents or employee base, et cetera. Hmm. I love that. Secondly, I, I took away from our conversation with Tom this idea of liminal agility or the ability to effectively navigate and leverage periods of discontinuity. And the idea that this doesn't mean the absence of anxiety or even a deep sense of responsibility in Tom's case, uh, for the growing base of employees and clients that he oversees. But in the face of some of that anxiety, in the face of that sense of responsibility, great leadership is expressed in the ability to be agile, to be liminally agile in these periods of disruption. Absolutely. And thirdly, for me, the takeaway is that liminal agility is like a muscle group in that through each acquisition, Sequoia got better. Through each inflection point that Tom spoke about, the business learned more. And after each market meltdown, they came out stronger. In these ways, Tom and his team exemplify what it means to truly harness the power of liminal space. Those were all great, Rick. Thanks for pointing those out. To find out more and to connect with Tom, make sure to check out sequoia-financial.com. This has been Unleashed with Rick Simmons. If you'd like to embrace change as a strategic advantage or learn how to catalyze periods of liminality within your organization, go to thetelosinstitute.com. Unleashed, a production of Forbes Books.